Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. On this episode, our associate care pastor, Joshua Masters, kicks off a two-week series about how we respond to God's calling. If you want to watch this week's message and listen to this week's worship, you can do so on our website, brookwoodchurch.org, or you can find that and much more on our Brookwood Church app. We pray that this message encourages you as you walk with Christ. Brookwood. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm glad that I'm here, and I'm glad that we're here together. We have spent the last eight weeks exploring what it means to experience a relationship with Jesus Christ, to experience God. But that begs an important question. Once we have truly experience the presence of God, what should our life look like? Because when we experience God, our life should look different. Today we're starting a two-week mini-series called Respond. And uh, that is why we have a 20-foot cell phone up on the screen. Because when we think of respond in our culture, the first thing that comes to mind are those three little dots that show up on your phone when someone's about to respond, right? And you know that excitement that you get when you're texting with someone and you see the little dots pop up that mean that they're about to respond, that that feels good, right? Well, have you ever considered that God gets excited when we respond to his promises, to the promises that he sent us? But sometimes when we're texting with someone and we see those little dots, they disappear. They go away, right? And that means they've either changed their mind or they're trying to figure out the right way to respond. And sometimes that's us with God. We want to respond, but we don't know how. So during these two weeks, we're going to dig into nine verses that are found in 2 Peter chapter 1. And as God's promises appear on this cell phone that's going to come up up here, I want you to ask yourself, how will I respond? As the verses and the promises show up on the phone, how will I respond? So go ahead and turn or swipe in your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. That is way in the back of your Bible or at the very bottom of your scroll. In fact, I think doing it with your phone is more spiritual, right? Because you're reading from scrolls. That's, that's going to come back. That's going to come back. If you're using the Bible available at Brookwood, it's on page 981, 981. And while you do that, while you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of context about the letter written by Peter. 2 Peter is written to the church as a whole. Now, the first people to read it may have been the believers in modern-day Turkey because those are the believers he sent his first letter to. But it's very clear from the text that Peter is addressing the entire church body, the entire body of Christ. The most important thing to know about this letter 
is that Peter is about to die. And he knows that he's about to die. So this letter was likely written around 66 to 68 AD, likely from a Roman prison just before Peter was executed. We know this because he says this later on in the same book, later on in chapter 1. Starting in verse 13, he says, It is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. He knew he was about to die. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. This letter that we're going to look at is Peter's dying words of advice and encouragement to believers. He's desperate for them to cling to God and avoid false teaching. He's desperate for them to be transformed and live a life of purpose and mission. The question is, do you want to live a life of purpose and mission? Do you? I want you to think about that question as we go through these passages over the next two weeks. Because at first glance, these verses that we're about to read are going to seem like they're about Christian character development, and they are. But what they're really about is our purpose in this life. See, you can't experience God without being changed. And you can't be changed by God without developing a consuming compassion for God's compassion a consuming compassion for where his heart is. And his heart is with the lost, the people who don't know him. So you can't be changed with him without developing that yourself. It is impossible to love God and be passive about the mission of the church. It's impossible to love God and be passive about the mission of the church, which is reaching out to the broken. Peter's got one last chance to instruct the church. One last chance to train them up in the purpose that they have in Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, knowing it will be his last. We start in verse 3. Verse 3 on page 981. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. So according to this, is it possible to live a godly, holy life that is set apart for the purposes of God? Yes, absolutely. So let's unpack this verse. Look at the first sentence. The first sentence in verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. It says God, through his divine power, has given. In both English and Greek, that's written in the past tense. It has already happened. 
So godly life is for right now. Living a godly life is for right now. It's not for tomorrow. It's not for eternity. It's for now. And it says he has already given us some of what we need. Is that what it says? It says we everything we need. He's given us everything that we need to live a godly life today. From the very moment that we become saved, the moment that we are born again, we have access to the power that is necessary to live a godly life. That is the great lie of the enemy, that it takes years. No, from the moment you're saved, you have access to this power to live a godly life. But here's a fair question, and it is a fair question. If our salvation is secured and assured, which it is, our salvation is assured. If that's true, why bother doing the work now? Why live a godly life now when we know through his promises that God is going to transform us into a place of perfection and glory when he returns? So why work on it now? Well, we said it again and again in the Experiencing God series. Obedience is the outward expression of our love for God. But let's go even deeper than that. Because as we obey God, as we love God and obey Him, we grow in Christ-like character. And that produces fruit. We are called to model the life of Christ. And Jesus' perfect life was lived on earth for a mission he had to fulfill on earth. And we, through Christ, are called to live a godly life on earth for a purpose and a mission we're called to fulfill on earth. We will be fully perfected when Christ returns. But too many of us use that as an excuse to stay imperfect now. Our desire should be to draw as close to that perfection in Christ as possible before that day arrives. Because if we wait until Christ's return to seek a godly existence, we will have missed the opportunity to fulfill the purpose that he's called us to here. Eternity is where we will perfect worship. But this broken world is where we're called to perfect service. Here, now. So how do we access this power to live a godly life? We look at the second half of verse 3, the second sentence. Bottom of page 981 in the Bible available at Brookwood. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Now the word know that's here, K-N-O-W, we've received this by knowing him. That word know doesn't mean I casually met him in the concourse of the church. It is an intimate word to fully and personally know someone. 
And I think we've talked about this before. In Scripture, how else is the word no translated? Anyone remember? Experience. We receive this power by experiencing God. We know him by experiencing him. We don't talk much about the Passion Translation, but I like the way they, they state this sentence. The Passion Translation uses the sentence this way. It says, for all of this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing him. Through the rich experience of knowing him. We continue in verse 4. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. The promises of God enable us to share in God's divine nature. That's an incredible offer. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more deeply next week and talk about what that really means. But the promises of God allow us to escape the world's corruption, to escape our own earthly desires and live a godly life. So what promises? What promises is Peter talking about? What promises has God made? How many, take a guess, how many promises do you think there are in the Bible? How many? 7,000? That's a good guess. Anyone else? Did, someone said a lot. <laughs> it's estimated that there are at least 30,000 promises in the Bible. 30,000 promises. John Bunyan once said, the pathway of life is strewn so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. 30,000 promises that enable us to live a godly life. God's promises of guidance, John 16. Wisdom, Proverbs 2. Instruction, John 14. Strength, Psalm 18. Freedom from sin, Romans 8. The power to persevere, Philippians 4, 13. Escape from temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. Victory over evil, James 4. I've got 29,992 left to go. Should I, should I keep going? See, the question is not the sufficiency of God's promises. The question is how we respond to those promises. We continue in verse 5. So how do we respond? Here we go. Hang on to your hat. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Peter, in his dying words, lists seven things that we should make every effort to add to our faith. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, 
patient endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, love for everyone. That's an intimidating list. But there are two very important things that we need to remember as we look at these elements of building Christian character over the next two weeks. The first is that we are incapable of living this kind of life without the Holy Spirit. We cannot achieve this on our own power. The power comes from the divine nature and the promises of God alone. But we respond by pursuing the results of those promises. We pursue the results of those promises in our life. And then the second thing that we need to remember as we go through this list over the next two weeks is that these qualities are the things that we should see growing in our life in response to our salvation. They are not the prerequisite for salvation. Don't put that on a non-believer. This is our response to the glorious gift that he's given us. After Peter gives the list of Christian character traits, he says this. Verse 8. The more you grow like this, and this word grow in Greek, it means continually growing, as you are continually growing. The more you grow continually like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, actually, the NLT is being a little kind here. It's being somewhat kind because the Greek actually highlights the negative. What this passage actually says is unless you are continually growing in all of these things, you will be unproductive and fruitless. Look at this verse carefully. Do we want to be growing as a church body? Do we want to be productive and useful as we experience God? Because the sad reality is that many people who call themselves Christians are not productive at all. They go to church. They fill their time with church activities. But they're not productive for the kingdom. Many of us have a come-to-church mentality when we need to have a mission-focused mentality. Tomorrow is Veterans Day, and I know that David already honored you, but I want to say myself, if you have served, thank you. Thank you. Veterans understand mission better than most civilians, but we need to start wrapping our brains around it. Soldiers don't receive medals of honor for training exercises. They receive medals of honor for courageous acts of valor in the line of duty. The Christian life is not about sitting in church. It, this is a place for training. We don't get our medals and our rewards for attending church. We get our medals and our rewards for reaching people and meeting the mission of the church, showing compassion. And this plan for building Christian character is about training for that mission. The first four traits in the list are inward changes that we should be seeking in our lives. 
And the last three are outward expressions of those inward changes. So what we're going to do is this week we're going to look at the inward changes, the first four in the list, and then next week we'll look at the outward expressions of those changes, the last three on the list. So let's break down those verses. Let's go back to verse 5. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. The first thing Peter tells us to be forever growing in is moral excellence. We respond to God's promises by growing in moral excellence. What do some of your other translations say instead of moral excellence? Virtue, yes, that's the King James. Goodness, that's the NIV. And probably the best translation this time around is the NLT, which says moral excellence. But what's missing from all of the English translations is this sense from the Greek word that means courage. The Greek word implies courage. Moral excellence with courage. In fact, write that on your outline in parentheses. Moral excellence, parentheses, with courage. We're talking about mission, right? Well, the word for moral excellence here is arete. Arete was used in Greek culture to describe the moral heroes, the supermen. An unattainable ability to fulfill heroic, courageous deeds with virtue and excellence in every aspect of the hero's life. But Peter is saying it is attainable. It is attainable through the divine power of Jesus Christ and through the promises of God. And Paul agreed with him. Paul told us to fix our thoughts on those things. He encourages us to focus our thoughts on pursuing this kind of lifestyle. He said, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent, arete, the same word Peter used for moral excellence. Think about things with moral excellence, things that are worthy of praise, Philippians 4.8. Do you, and I want you to answer me, do you want to live a courageous life? Do you want to live a courageous life of moral excellence? You did better than the first service. They kind of backed off that second one. Because it takes courage to live a different kind of life. It takes courage not to gossip. It takes courage not to lie. It takes courage not to live in sexual immorality. It takes courage to take in a child that needs a home. This is adoption month. It takes courage to give sacrificially. And here's one. It takes courage to grow in moral excellence, but not become so prideful about it that you judge non-believers who don't. We're called to live a different kind of life. The only thing that separates us from the immorality of the world is God's grace. 
but Christians have a tendency over and over to forget that and take on a sense of superiority over the world. We have to learn to live a life that's different from the world while still reaching out with compassion to that same world. It doesn't do the kingdom any good for you to live among non-believers and live exactly as they do. But listen very carefully. It also doesn't do the kingdom any good for you to pursue moral excellence and then isolate yourself from anyone you don't agree with. That's not the life we're called to. Moral excellence is about having a transformed life that's so unusually attractive to this selfish world that it draws broken people to Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. The moral excellence in our life is about having a transformed life that is so unusually attractive to the selfishness of this world that it draws broken people to God. Moral excellence. We also respond to God's promises by continually growing in knowledge. Number two, growing in knowledge. The second trait is all about acquiring the mind of Christ. Back to verse 5. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge. Now, this type of knowledge isn't just about learning information, although that is part of it. It's about experiencing God's truth in such a way that it becomes infused into our character, who we are and how we live. This kind of knowledge leads to wisdom and discernment, not trivia. So this is not about gaining information, but it does take effort and it does take study. It takes learning the Word of God, having His instructions become part of who we are, meditating on the Word of God day and night. How much of our day is truly dedicated to that, really? That's a question I struggle with, and I'm, and I'm being honest here. Because if I believe that this book is the living Word of God, if I believe that this is a personal message from God to me, why is it not in my hands every spare second I can find? Why don't I treat this Bible like I treat my phone? Peter is saying that we're called to a different kind of life and that we should be like the believer that is described in the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. Psalm 1.1 says this, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. You know what that is? Moral excellence. That's moral excellence, right? Our first point. Text me verse 2. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. And the law of the Lord in the Old Testament, refers to the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. So he's saying meditating on God's Word day and night, growing in knowledge of who He is. 
And that leads to Psalm 1-3. Those people are like trees planted along a riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Unswaying, rooted trees that are bearing fruit. They have moral excellence. They meditate on God's word day and night. And they fulfill a mission. That's the life we're being called to in 2 Peter. And remember, Peter was specifically writing to Christians because they had been exposed to false teaching. So he wanted to make sure that they were rooted in the truth of Scripture. And that problem hasn't gone away because there is no end to the number of false teachings in our culture. People who have never read a single verse of this Bible are absolutely convinced they know what it says. And I'm not just talking about non-believers, I'm talking about believers. Even worse, there are people who do know exactly what this book says and they will purposefully mislead you anyway. The only way to protect ourselves from false teaching is exactly what Peter was telling the church of his day. We need to study this book ourselves and not rely on man. Acts 17.11 describes the Bereans, and Scripture says that they were of more noble character than other believers, and they received an extra blessing. Why? Because they accepted what their preachers were saying with an open heart. But then they searched the scriptures day and night to make sure what they were being taught was true. Don't let anyone tell you what this Bible says. Have an open heart. Be teachable. Listen, but don't simply accept everything that Perry says every Sunday. Accept what I say, but don't accept what Perry says. No, and I mean this sincerely. Don't accept what I say. Don't blindly follow anything that I say or Perry or JC or David. None of us want that. The way cults maintain control is by convincing people that they're not capable of understanding truth, so you have to blindly accept what they say. But biblical Christianity doesn't mean checking your brain at the door. Grow in knowledge, question things, dig into Scripture, find out what God says, not what man says. Be like the Bereans. Be teachable. Be open-hearted. But then search this book to make sure that what you're being taught is true. And ask yourself every day, what have I learned about the character of Jesus Christ today? And make sure you have an answer. If we want to be more like Christ, we need to grow in our experience and our knowledge of him. Are you willing to pursue a deep and intimate knowledge of God and his will for your life? We move on to verse 6. Verse 6. And supplement, supplement or add to knowledge, self-control. Supplement knowledge with self-control. We respond to God's promises by growing in self-control. That's number three. Where have we heard this phrase self-control before? 
the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And self-control is our favorite. As we talked about earlier, the Greek word used for moral excellence was used to describe courageous moral heroes. The Greek word used for self-control was used in reference to sports heroes, athletes. It was used to describe their intense training and their willingness to abstain from sinful behavior like gluttony and drunkenness and sexual immorality. Why? So they could focus on what mattered. They not only train their bodies, they train their minds. And that's what we're called to do. Romans 12, 2. We should view the Christian life as continual focused training for the mission God has given us. This is what Paul was talking about when he said this. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And he's not talking about being disqualified from salvation. He means his rewards his medal because he understands that we are here for a purpose. Do you understand that we're here for a purpose? Do you come to church because it's the thing to do or is it part of a training regimen to reach a lost world? Because that's the mindset we should have. Sin and self-indulgence interferes with our ability to train just like those athletes. It inhibits how effective we are for the kingdom. We're not called to pursue a life of self-control and godliness just so that we can say we were good at the end of the day. We're called to pursue that kind of life so we're ready for the opportunities God gives us to affect the lives of other people. Are you intentional in looking for those opportunities? Are you intentional in looking for the invitations God is giving you to speak into the life of non-believers and other believers? That's why we chase after moral excellence. That's why we chase, chase after an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the more we grow in those two traits, the more important it is that we seek His power in developing self-control in our lives because the enemy will attack us. He doesn't want you to grow in Christ. He doesn't want us to grow in these virtues. He will attack us with temptation after temptation. He will attack us at our weakest point. But why? Why does he do that? You're already saved. He can't take that away from you. No one can take your salvation away from you. So what good does it do Satan to make you stumble? It's not about threatening your salvation. It's about stifling how effective you are in your salvation. It's about the witness that you have in the lives of non-believers. It's about your ability to mentor new believers. He wants to stifle what you can accomplish within your salvation. Satan, Satan will tempt you into being comfortable in the church so you're not doing the work of the church. He will tempt you to sin 
But here's what we have to understand about the temptations of our enemy. They don't have any teeth. The temptations of our enemy has no teeth. James 4, 7. So humble yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's another one of the 30,000 promises that will help you live a godly life. Humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he might flee from you. Is that what it says? He will flee from you. Okay, here is the secret. Here's the secret to growing in self-control. Are you ready? The secret to growing in self-control is realizing that the enemy only has one real move against us convincing us not to stand up against him. Every attack against us, every attack against our family is really just a distraction to keep us from fighting back. Because he knows the moment we actually stand up and say no, he has to flee. He has no authority over you. You have authority over him because the divine nature of God lives in you. It's just a trick to keep you from fighting back because he loses every time. The reason that we don't have self-control in our lives is because we surrender it to an enemy that has no weapons. But that doesn't mean that his attacks don't hurt. I don't want to minimize the suffering that can be inflicted. I don't want to minimize your pain. We do face trials in this world. And that leads us back to verse 6. Halfway through verse 6. And supplement self-control with patient endurance. We respond to God's promises by growing in patient endurance. Patient is my least favorite. I am slowly being transformed. God is changing me. But by nature, I am not a patient person. In general, when I want something, I want it now. I'm the J.G. Wentworth of Christianity. It's my blessing, and I want it now. But this idea of patient endurance isn't really about waiting for something that you want. In fact, this word patience is much too passive of a word. Cicero when he was working from the Latin translation, described this word in Scripture like this. He said this, Patient endurance is the voluntary and daily suffering of hard and difficult things for the sake of honor and usefulness. There's that word useful again. Because this word, which is sometimes translated perseverance, never means accepting hardship just so that you can survive the trial. God has called us to a greater life than just surviving. This word is always looking forward. It's looking forward to how God is going to use this trial for good. It's looking forward in the hope of God's promises. Struggles can either break us or draw us closer to God in our brokenness. And we can rejoice too, Paul said, when we run into problems and trials. 
for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us. Because he gave us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Romans 5. Do you face your struggles with hopeful endurance? Because God's not the only one who sees how you respond to struggle. So does the world. And the world is watching how we respond to struggles. Christians have got to stop whining. We've got to stop whining and start embracing the promises of God. Because every time we complain, every time we express a negative, defeated attitude in front of an unbelieving world, what we're really saying is this problem is bigger than my God. We've got to start embracing the promises of God and stop being so negative. That doesn't mean that we're fake with people. It doesn't mean that we put on a mask. That's not biblical either. But it does mean that we evaluate our heart in all circumstances. Because the way that we respond to trials is the biggest witness to a world filled with brokenhearted people. Some people think that the best way to witness is to tout their blessings to non-believers. Look at this house God gave me. Look at this car God gave me. Look at this family I have that God gave me. That doesn't help. That annoys people. And it annoys them because they can explain it away. A non-believing world can explain away our blessings as hard work or luck or karma, they might call it. But what the world cannot explain away is how we move through struggles with integrity and hope. What the world cannot explain away is how we actually thrive and grow in situations that seem unsurvivable. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. We do grieve, but we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. The gospel isn't the promise of a perfect life. It's the promise of hope in a life that isn't. That's what we're supposed to show the world. But we can't do that if our lives look like everybody else's. No. Growing in a life of moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and patient endurance isn't about perfection. It's about responding to the promises of God, loving Him enough to let Him transform us to be more like Him so that we can be productive and useful in a broken world. We need to pursue these inward changes because it affects how we approach God and it affects how we approach the people in the world. It affects how we interact with people. And that's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to explore the outward expressions of these inward changes. But ask yourself, 
Where am I stuck in my spiritual growth? Which of these fill-ins sting? Because very likely that's where God wants to work in your life. And if you want someone to pray with you about it, if you know what it is and you want someone to pray with you, we're going to have care partners, care volunteers down front and in the care connection room after we close. They will pray with you. They will anoint you with oil. But you have to seek people out. You have to have people pray with you. You have to journey with people. Because this is what Scripture says about the world that we're living in. This is what Scripture says about the age that we're living in right now. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. They'll be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not loving good, They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is all around us. This is our culture that our neighbors are drowning in. This is what many of us in the church are drowning in. How will you respond? Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ promises something better. Hopeful endurance. Purpose. Mission. Meaning. Let's live a different kind of life. Let's pray. Father God, we are not worthy to approach you except for the fact that you allow us to wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're not worthy to share in your divine nature, except for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, our desire is to be a people of action. We don't want to be a body who tries to get credit for sitting in a chair when we know that you have called us to a place of compassion and love and hope to a broken world. Stir us up, Lord. Don't allow us to be content. Show us how to grow in all these things, Lord, so that we can be a representation of your light to a world of darkness. We give you praise knowing that you are good and you allow us to approach you when we have no right to do so. We give you praise for that in the name of Christ. Amen. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. Email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call us at 864-688-8326 to get into contact with our Connections team. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.